What's going on with dance and stuff? What's happening with dance and things? What's going on? What's happening? What's going on with dance and stuff? Um, is everyone recording? Everyone hit record. I'm recording. I'm on Arguello Boulevard. Should we all clap on the count of three? Yes, that sounds really good. One, two, three. No, I'm you sorry. Didn't do it. Didn't do it. Okay, right when I say three. One, two, three. Wow. No. Reed okay, was... One more time. One more time. Reed really good. One, two, three. Okay, whatever. This isn't working. I thought it was good. I thought that was our best effort. That was really good. And that was really what it is to have a director in the room. Ladies, I'm and other. We are joined here with Matt Wolf. And, um, Matt, what a treat. Thank you so much for, for, for coming. And, uh, and before we even, before we get to your film, let's first talk about you. Oh, I love that. Well, (laughs) Matt Wolf, where, where are you? Are you in your, are you on the Lower East Side? Well, I have an office in the basement of a building in the West Village. So I'm in that basement. Oh, that's why it looks like a basement. Exactly. (laughs) It it literally is a basement and I'm in it. (laughs) Uh, I do love the West Village, as I love the Lower East Side. So you, but and you're, and you've been using this office during Quar instead of just working from home. You've been like, I need, I'm going to get out of my apartment and I'm going to go work well, in an office. Well, my boyfriend's at home, and we don't do well being together 24 hours a day. So, <laughs> uh-huh. but you know, it's you could call this a studio. Um, like nobody's here, so it is kosher. Mm-hmm. It's kosher. Right. Um. But yeah, it's like I'm around the corner from where Carrie Bradshaw wrote her column. So it's Well, and don't you frequently just feel like the filmmaker Carrie Bradshaw? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I mean I just picture you walking over to your office going da 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 I mean, your movies are so like the Sex and the City column. <laughs> it's really true. It's really walking true. Walking past all the empty storefronts and the yuppies <laughs> Reveling at the outdoor dining areas, uh, um, with with your mask on and goggles and, like, and vinyl gloves. Yeah. <laughs> do you bike over there? or Do you walk? I bike. I'm a big biker now. I was kind nice. of like a me- a medium biker. Now I'm a big biker, and um, yeah, it's great to go somewhere every day. I feel like a business person. Uh, I'm gonna do that when I get back to New York. I'm gonna be like you. We're gonna literally cross town on our bikes as I go to the Lower East Side from home and you go to the lower, what's it called? I haven't been in New York. The West months. Village. Carrie's <laughs> <laughs> Car- hood. Oh my God, exactly. That's- the West Village, which is essentially the place that I lived, which I couldn't remember what it was called. It is, it is, it's, it is now called Carrie's hood, Reed. Now that, now, okay. yeah, now that, now that the New York population has gone back to what it was in the nineties, when it, it's just called well, Carrie's hood. The, board, the, the boarded up just- storefronts have been unboarded and are now just vacant. Yeah, yeah. We're, oh, wow. So it's like empty apartments, empty stores, because everyone's out in the Hamptons and, yeah. or, you know, Greenwich, Connecticut. Or upstate. So I'm going back to a ghost town. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, anyways, we'll pass each other on our bikes. We'll wave like that. Mm-hmm. I love that. Or we can go into the courtyard of your building and have a picnic with Andrew and Thomas if, if they ever come back. They're here. Yeah, we could totally oh, do that. God. We could totally do that. Oh, my God. Last <laughs> night. 
I was what just doing this podcast right now. I watched the Dakota Johnson Ellen DeGeneres interview last night. Yes, you don't know yes. about it, the infamous I, I, one about the I, birthday party. I do. I no. definitely do. Oh when God, Ellen, please is, tell me everything. Well, Ellen is like, I heard you turn 30. I wasn't invited to the birthday party. And Dakota Johnson says, no, actually, you were invited to the birthday party. She says, no, I wasn't. She said, no, Ellen, that's not the truth. Ask your producer, Jason. And, um, you know, they get into a whole confrontation. And Dakota Johnson throws her a lot of shade. And it's very entertaining and uncomfortable. Dakota really, wow. Dakota really holds eyes with Ellen during it. And it, um, it, I remember when it came out, it was such a... I, I did really love that moment. It, it's the Clash of the Titans. Was it all in good fun or was, was no, there a real confrontation? It was confrontational. Oh. Yeah, it was like she was standing up for all the celebrities who couldn't stand up to Ellen. You know, the queen. Well, he, uh, the queen, the uh, queen Ellen, of mean. Ellen is famously mean. Well, aren't you following her uh, downfall right now? No. The egregious no. sex. Reed doesn't know. you're not in the Reed. West Village. She's been, you know, mercilessly sexually... <laughs> No, she hasn't been sexually harassing. Her gay executive producer has been sexually harassing men in the control room, and there's oh, a lot dear. of there's a lot of microaggressions that are racially motivated. It's a toxic workplace. And I do love how that could, our podcast. How could Ellen like not Us know? Magazine's really good. Yeah, <laughs> can't can't Well, I don't remember. I mean, I cancel culture. The the nightmare. I mean, I really feel that. I knew about the Ellen. I knew that people were saying that Ellen had been mean or had been saying like, had like riders, like, don't look at me. But I didn't know about her gay producer harassing people. Um, And I, I did see that Portia de Rossi, however, is standing up for Ellen. And um, (laughs) I don't know, but it's a tricky thing with Ellen because it's like the world completely like ripped her to shreds. Yeah. A hundred percent. She, she experienced the worst parts of, uh, the industry and then built herself back up. And, you know, maybe she needed an edge to deal with how talks, you know, talk like how misogynist, you know, people, the rage people have for women. And I, yeah, I think we can hold both truths at once that she's a victim yes. of homo- homophobic misogyny and um, heteropatriarchy, but also um, mean, you know, Yes, yes. Also, but also, but well, it's the real case of like, she hires a bunch of evil gay men. Right. I mean, it's this thing of if, you know, maybe she didn't go to therapy, so she acted it out. If you don't go to therapy, you either become a victim or a perp. So, you know, that's when when you've gone through um, something. Is Ellen like a, um, a transcendental meditator? What is she, do we know what her practices are? Mm -mm. No. She gets, she's rich. Sneakers. We know she's, she's really rich. rich. She's super rich. rich. She does. Rich. She does lots of sneakers. She she, I was about to say miles. she likes sneakers. She loves, yeah. and she likes plain cheese pizza. Those are the only <laughs> things I know about her. Well, and I didn't know about any. I didn't know that she was mean or anything till last year in a podcast that I love called Nympho Wars, mm. where they were t- they were like Evil Ellen, and they were t- they did an episode about her stand up show. We're talking about Evil Ellen, and I was like, "What is this about?" And then I got some some intel from my friends who live in LA. Speaking of where one lives, Matt, where are you from? I grew up in San Jose, California. <gasps> Am I really close to yeah, there? I'm I in San Francisco. You're currently in San Francisco or you grew up in San yeah. Francisco? 
No, no, no you're, she's currently you're an at hour San north. I would take Caltrain to San Francisco and walk around like I had business to do when I was a teenager. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I basically, I drove past San Jose because I just came from LA and we drove along the Pacific coast. And so we drove past San Jose or is San Jose quite inland and depressing? Um, you, you kind of, <laughs> it's not that, I mean, it's fine. It's whatever. It's a big city. It's bigger than San Francisco. It's where the personal computing really began, you know, so that's mm-hmm. significant mm-hmm. Silicon Valley. But, um, you didn't really drive past it on Scenic Highway 1, but you drove, no. like, adjacent to it. Did you get nauseous on your drive? Terribly. We were going up a thing, and I was like, ugh. And then the the dog started to get kind of, like, weird, and then I burped really aggressively, and I felt much better. Okay. Much better. Good. Yeah, but I, I, I did a lot of sleeping on the drive because I was dissociating from the nausea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't wait to take that drive. So you grew up in San Jose, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then, and then, what happened from there? Yeah, I moved to, to New York school, as though? an eighteen-year-old. I went to NYU Film School. It was very like mm-hmm. anti NYU, anti film school. Got you know joined the video activist collective called Paper Tiger Television. You know what, what was that about? Yeah, tell um, us about that. It was about how the corporate media lies to you. And we taught, you know, queer youth how to make activist videos and, Mm -hmm. you know, curated video art and democratically produced media for public access and all that jazz. And then, you know. What year? About what year was that? The year 2000. Um, Wow. Y2K. The year of our Lord, 2000. Yeah, so, you know, and then by the end of film school, I was like, I do want to be a filmmaker. And then, you know, I became one. And you really did. (laughs) And then what was, you really did. You really, I mean, and we're going to, we're going to get to your, your newest one soon. I mean, literally seeing a movie of yours in a movie theater. Can't say that about any of our guests. Wow. Well, I'm glad that you did it before when movie theaters were a thing. (laughs) But when movie theaters, well, you know, there'll be a thing again, Matt, and we'll all, We'll go, we'll have our arms linked just like the poster of All About Eve and be walking into a, 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 a theater a high, called the a, Palladium. An air filtered environment that has some sort of projected light. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. With our hazmat suits on. Um, what was your first film out of college? Well, right away when I graduated college, I started making a documentary about the musician Arthur Russell who mm-hmm. was kind of experiencing a cult revival. He's a disco producer and avant-garde cellist who um, died of AIDS in 1992. And then in the kind of early 2000s, um, his music was being re-released. And so I wanted to make like an experimental video record about him, but started interviewing people. And as I was interviewing other musicians and people who were close to him, Um, I realized that I was making a documentary, which I never really set out to do. And that film became Wild Combination, a portrait of Arthur Russell. And um, yeah, I think people liked the film because it was very gay. I really focused on his relationship with his boyfriend and and looked at him as, you know, one of many um, artists who have passed uh, from AIDS and, and are this kind of invisible generation, which I feel connected to. So that was the first film I made. And it came out, I think, when I was like 25 and then continued to, to make films 
from there, but never really set out to do documentaries. I just sort of stumbled into making one. How long did the Arthur Russell movie take you to put for you to put together? I think it took about two years. It was really one of those things where it felt stressful, but was easy in retrospect. And like, I did it with friends from film school. It was, it cost very little money to make and it just went well. It gave me this impression that filmmaking was a pretty like smooth process. But um, um, yeah, I was really, I was fortunate to, to have such a positive first filmmaking experience. I feel like most people don't and it discourages them from doing it again. Yeah, it's well, especially on this coast, I feel it's a different kind of environment. I mean, and at that point, too, in 2000, like killer films is still going on. I feel like we had enough independent, the independent film industry hadn't collapsed. Well, yeah, and this was a little later. And I think I went to film school in 2000. And that model of like new queer cinema was absolutely what I wanted to be a part of. And right. I, you know, I just, as I was finishing film school, it, it, you know, in 2004, five, it was clear that, that that kind of model of filmmaking was changing and that like independent film had become a more mainstream and commercialized thing. And, and I guess I just never considered documentaries to be a kind of creative space. I was coming from that video activist collective I think I really thought of it more as um, bleeding, bleeding heart or not visual mm. or artistic. And, and so I, I came at it from a very different angle and, and kind of with a lot of skepticism about documentaries. And I think I figured out how to combine a lot of my interests, like in terms of making creative and artistic films um, that dealt with, you know, experimental subject matter and subjects, but also that was really queer and about the past, not just about the present. And all those things are what really interests me. And I think a lot of those things are true of the new queer cinema that inspired me to become a filmmaker, but I, I chose to do it in documentaries Um, and uh, documentaries have changed a lot since 2008 when my first film came out. Mm -hmm. I I had never considered um, documentaries in the same way that you were saying as like a creative medium until I saw a really like bad documentary. And then I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. this is a hard thing to do. Well, like, cause you can really, really fuck it up. Well, yeah. Most, most are pretty bad. Yeah. Most are bad. And I think, yeah, it's often like an information dump. Um, but yeah, I, right. I, I, I mean, I, I try to take a kind of more artist approach to making documentaries and, I'm interested in reality and real things and archival material and biographies and just, you know, that those are the things I'm drawn toward. And I like um, dealing with real people. I mean, not that actors aren't real people, but I like the complexity of dealing with someone whose real story I'm given permission to tell. Well, also in documentary and what it, I mean, and mm-hmm. what I feel in terms of the work that, you've done and, and and when we get to talking about this recent one it is this thing of yes it's a documentary but there's it's a documentary that has a story I mean because everyone mm-hmm. has has a story and I think documentaries can either fall into this like too academic or too illustrative that's maybe tilts into but did that really happen or is this fiction etc 
And there's something very different to, I mean, it reminds me of Didion, like why Didion is so fantastic about uh, covering a topic that is, it has journalism to it, but it has a, 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 it's, it's the way that it's able to view it from above. Yeah. Or has a kind of quality that still tells a story. It has a bent. Yeah, and I think that whole idea of literary nonfiction applies to filmmaking too. Is, and for me, the way I use that word is more um, how can a narrative or a character story be a sort of vector to look at bigger ideas or a bigger cultural history? Like, how does an individual point to just something much bigger than themselves? And, and a lot of the subjects I choose are, are kind of idiosyncratic or marginal people, but I try to make stories that have significance or metaphors or that point to big huge ideas that are super relevant now without doing some sort of topical film that explains ideas and makes an argument about why they're relevant i try to i try to express those ideas through the particularities of the subjects that i depict in films who were your inspirations in film i mean early on as a teenager i was really into todd haynes's films um yes you know Superstar, the, the Karen Carpenter story, and yeah. Poison, and Safe. I mean, those were movies that made me want to be a filmmaker. And then, um, you know, I saw documentaries on this program, POV on PBS, as a teenager. And a lot of them really inspired me, particularly this one called License to Kill, which I saw the night before I came out of the closet. And it's a film <laughs> about, it's more intense than you're expecting, it's a film about men who killed gay men. Um, and it's just interviews with these men from prison with grisly crime scene photos. And it affected me so much. I came out of the closet the next day. Um, so I had some like visceral encounters with documentaries more so than documentary filmmakers. And then, you know, in college I got really, because everybody at NYU was so lame. I just got really (laughs) kind of like anti-film. And so um, I became more interested in experimental film and video art and was like kind of thinking more about the art world and video installations. And like many young people gravitated towards Sadie Benning's video art and Sadie became a friend of mine. And I loved um, living down the street. Um, Like I loved, um, you know, the experimental films of someone named Elizabeth Subrin um, all sorts of like feminist video art became really inspiring to me. But then as a senior in college, I had the good fortune to have the professor Kelly Reichardt, who's oh. a filmmaker who, you know, her, her most recent film is First Cow. She made the film Old Joy. and, and She teaches at Bard. I teach, we're, she, we're both at Bard, yeah. Oh yeah, awesome. So she was at NYU at the time and she like exploded my brain. We became... Yeah very close. She was the kind of mentor to me. And that was at the point where I realized I do, I see a viable model of what it looks like to be a filmmaker and an artist and to do things kind of on your own terms outside of whatever models being espoused by um, NYU or whatever institutions that are visible to me. And, and that really inspired me. And, and it is kind of what got me interested in not being a visual artist, but, but being a filmmaker to, to kind of re-engage in what storytelling is or could be. I never really like thought of myself as a storyteller, even though now I recognize that's primarily what I do. 
um, it wasn't my main interest getting into film. It wasn't like, I want to be a storyteller. Right. I want to tell great stories. <laughs> right. but, but I think I realized through Kelly and through the making of my first film, like, if you want to explore all sorts of ideas and visual approaches, but you want to engage people for an hour and a half in an emotionally involved way, you need to, you need to do storytelling. So I think over the years, I've kind of reinvested in that and, and gotten better at it and have ideas about how to do that, even though I don't come to a film with a, a passion for storytelling per se. Did you ever read The Art of Cruelty by Maggie Nelson? Mm-mm, I didn't. There's, some, there's something inside of this. I mean, she begins by talking about why, why, does, why in terms of a social activist a theater and performance work, why does so much of it fail? And how, how do we work with that? Or, and she, she mainly, she actually really doesn't cover... I think the only person she covers in dance is Streb, though she talks about the Arlene Crochet review with Bill T. Jones. But she talks a lot about Vini's actionism and uh, these ways of of uh, how do we engage with the audience around these things. But there is also this thing around fiction and story. And um, mm. and Kelly, God, I remember certain women just was it was something that I wanted everyone to see, and I feel I would be like, you have to see this movie and. People haven't seen it. I just got the screener for First Cow, which I'm excited to watch. Yeah, she, she's an amazing filmmaker and um, struggled for a long time to get yeah. films made. When she was my teacher, she hadn't made a, fil- a, a feature-length film for decades and was making short experimental Super 8 films, um, but, um, you know, has become this prolific kind of auteur. So it, it's been really amazing to see her kind of explode in her filmmaking after getting to know her as my teacher and now as a friend. I mean, making documentary films has such like a more expansive reach than doing like fine art films. And especially now with streaming platforms, because I don't know that a lot of people go to see documentaries in movie theaters, but I think a lot of people watch them on streaming stuff. They do. So has that changed? Well, I mean, changed everything for you. I think my most recent film which was released on Hulu and is kind of, that's how it's being experienced, of course, because of the quarantine. Like, I think some films really work that way and other films benefit from the kind of, what you could say, the cultural audience, like people in New York and cities who follow a culture in a broader sense and are drawn into the cultural experience of going to a movie theater or hearing a filmmaker speak. And I miss that. I to me, that's been really vital to other films. I mean, I had another film that came out last year called Recorder, the Marion Stokes project. And mm-hmm. I did lots of events at lots of different cinemas and museums. And I love the cultural experience of showing a film, even if it's to a smaller and niche audience, but people who are interested more broadly than just films or subjects or entertainment, but who, who love going to the theater as an experience. So I think some documentaries and, and mine have attracted that, a small, very niche audience in that way, but that over time, since I've started making documentaries, um, there's definitely been just a, a huge growth in the audience of people who like and appreciate them. I think a lot of people watch documentaries who never would have before, and that's a plus. But in terms of the streamers, I think that people are always like, there's so much opportunity, but the streamers really do, like, they're 
they want true crime or celebrity biopics or wow. like may, maybe a cult story. Right. I mean, they're, they're quite, they're quite picky as much as they say they desperately want content. And I do right. think like, um, it's hard to tell a story about a, an unknown subject. Once this executive who, who shall may remain unnamed said to me in a meeting, people don't want to know about things they don't know about. They want to, know about stuff they already know about and i was like what a deeply cynical and true way of looking at the world yeah i mean i feel that in myself sometimes where like you just like when you want to feel soothed or entertained you want to turn towards something you know and i think jack experiences that too because jackie watched those same movies over and over again like a child but i mean that is really that's i mean the number of times that i've I, I mean, I can quote Mommy Dearest backwards, but it's a thing of, um, and I've been thinking about this recently because there was this, uh, sorry, I don't need to talk about that, but it's called prediction failure. I've been reading this research by this analyst, which is that he was uh, looking at that memories are made when our predictions fail. Mm. And so it was part of why in the start of quarantine, everyone was going back to watching all the movies they had already seen. <laughs> And yeah. all the content totally, they'd already watched. I did I mean, that. That's interesting. I didn't think about it. So it was this thing of soothing us. I I literally watched big. I watched Big Business. Last yeah, night. I mean it's it's a thing of soothing us <laughs> through this idea of prediction failure. I mean, I rewatched all of Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. It's a real like all three seasons. I was like, well, I'll just go back through that because that's comforting. And, no, um, I, I totally share that desire right now to see things that I've appreciated in the past, and, and I think it is like kind of a bomb to like, to kind of reacquaint yourself with the familiar when it, like the mm. future is so completely non-existent. <laughs> yeah. Well, what is, yes. and Matt, when you, when for you, what are you rewatching? Just what we're, I mean, though I feel I already. Well, I was just in Fire Island with some friends and we watched, like I curated like um, alt 90s, 80s, 90s. <laughs> I'm so movies. jealous. We watched. Crossing Delancey, yes. Death Becomes yes. Her, um, Perfect, the John Travolta, Jamie Lee Curtis movie. Yes. Um, oh, my God. Another one that was good. We were going to watch Defending Her Life, but we didn't get to it. And then um, Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep are in Purgatory, and they wear white robes and go to court every day to assess if they were brave whether or not they and Reed, you haven't seen it? Oh, my God, I oh, have like to see it's this. It's a masterpiece. Wow. Oh, I've never seen it's a masterpiece. Oh, it's a masterpiece. Okay. Yeah, like kind of, just like that. <laughs> Wait, what was the other one we watched? We watched another good one. I can't remember what it was, but yeah, it was fun. And there's so many movies I haven't seen. I probably should watch them. And there's a whole list of movies I have to watch, you know, like. It's so hard to watch a movie. You well, seen. Support, good, well okay. You want to know what I'm really, you want to know what I'm really doing, which reveals how morbid I am. I, I started watching Shoah with a group of people. Um, at the beginning, it's the nine hour Holocaust documentary. Um, I started watching that at the beginning of quarantine. I was like, I have got time. I'm going to lean into the darkness. I, so this group, which is now called Beyond Shoah, we watch long form kind of like history documentaries together or like alternative history documentaries. We watched, um, we, we watched Eyes on the Prize, the seminal 14 hour, um, civil rights documentary, um, which we watched a couple of weeks before the protest, which was pretty amazing to wow. have that background. And then um, 
we watched this movie La Commune, like an experimental British TV film about um, the turn of the century Parisian commune where people created like an autonomous zone. Um, we just watched a three hour Lenny Riefenstahl documentary. So, you know, we're really going deep on not just the Holocaust, but history and history and uprisings in general. So um, that's my non-passive viewing. But, you know, there's plenty of passive viewing. How do you how do you watch them together? Do you just say, like, let's talk about it tomorrow? Well, well, we set like discussion dates Uh and then we get together and we discuss. I like to do the thing where you push play three, two, one. And then you watch it together. No, no, we <laughs> we didn't watch the fourteen hour film together. But um, but you know, yeah, it's not a viewing party. It's more like a discussion group. It's a book know? club. And like I, the hall, it's a book club that has a Holocaust bent to it. Well, when you want a break from that, may I suggest Tokyo Olympiad, which oh, is that the, was on my list of potential long form docs. I is it good? I, it is fantastic, and it sets up um, because at first I thought that it because uh, Jacob Sleminski, who has worked for me and who read knows it's Tokyo Olympiad is his favorite film. Mm-hmm. I remember him mm-hmm. telling me about it in like two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen. But then I found this movie called Sixteen Days of Glory, which is about the LA Olympics in nineteen eighty four mm-hmm. by Bud Greenspan. So, but in nineteen sixty four, Tokyo Olympiad was made, of which the Olympic committee was like, we hate this and then didn't let it be seen. And uh, it's incredible. I mean, Criterion is really, it's a good $100 investment. Um, It has most of the things I want to see on it right now. And uh, yeah, it's interesting because I think that's the real question. Like I, I am like someone who watches real housewives at home and then goes to Metrograph to watch my highbrow stuff. (laughs) Right, right. And so my the Anshoa Club like has really been like a bit of a training on how to watch more difficult things at home, um, and I think Criterion Channel um, app has really been like the people who cracked the code on how to get people to watch art house at home, and all the theaters are really struggling to do this virtual cinema thing. We we did it for the release of my film Spaceship Earth, but like which I can't wait to talk kinda, about. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, I feel like when people want to watch something artistic, they're going to Criterion to find it, and they really cracked a certain code. I hope everybody else can do it, too. And it looks, well, it looks good. I mean, their whole whole design for Criterion looks really good, and it's, uh, you know, they have, I, I will say there's things that they don't have that I wish they did have and, you know, but isn't that true of everywhere? I have a question. Um, and they keep adding, they add stuff. It, and do they add programs. and they take out. Is yeah. it $100 yeah. a year? A year. Oh, yeah. okay. That's good. It is that's so That's really good. I that's mean, cheaper than Netflix. I no? remember, I don't know. I, know. I use my dad's Netflix account. Netflix, is, yeah. I think, is like 12 or 14 a month. Well, I couldn't do the math on that. Is that like Hulu is really expensive? <laughs> I use my friend Patty's Hulu account. You know, it's really expensive. I yeah, like I to think do I use um, someone else's Hulu account too. You use mine. I like to do one week free oh. trials of like HBO Max and Disney Plus, so, and watch as much as possible, and then stop. <laughs> well, right yeah. now I'm not using your Hulu account because um, I'm using Parker's account, mm-hmm. which is how Matt. I saw Spaceship Earth and then wrote oh. it immediately. And I was like, Reed, you have to watch this movie. And then 
um, I know the director, we have to talk to him. And then Rita's like, I also know the director. And it was a real Damn. gay, it was a real Damn. gay mafia moment. Um, it was an absolute like queer coven. And uh, so how, who did you, I was curious in watching it, if you knew any or knew any of these people who were in Spaceship Earth, how did this start? Well, I didn't even know what Biosphere 2 was. I had no recollection of it. I was, I don't know, nine years old when it happened. And so I, you know, when I'm in between films, as I am now, I do lots of internet-based research, looking for archives, looking for weird stuff. And I came across this image of eight people in bright red jumpsuits who looked like the band Devo standing in front of a glowing glass pyramid. And I thought it was a still from a science fiction film, but in fact, it was real. And that structure that is called Biosphere 2, they lived sealed inside of for two years. So um, you know, I, it didn't take me long to realize that these people are all alive and this is an incredible story. I'm so um, excited right now. I just got so excited to talk about this movie. <laughs> oh, good, good. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I've talked about it a lot, but I, sorry. I'm excited sorry. to talk well, about it. Well, thank you. Thank I'm excited you for to talk about it with, with you. Um, <laughs> thank you. But, yeah, you know, that's part of what I do is I track people down and try to convince them to trust me well that's so, that's um, my first question about just in general when you're doing like the marion stokes story or the arthur russell story when you reach out to all these people who are related to or connected to these people do people generally just want to talk to you like people kind of probably want to talk about themselves and the things they know without being paid is that true yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Now that I have made a number of films, I come to them with some credibility. Mm -hmm. So it's not like some random person contacting them. But you'd be surprised even before I had any sort of credibility. Um, when you call someone with interest in something that they have stakes in or that was relevant to them, usually I'm going to them about things that are underappreciated or people who are underrecognized. Right. Um, they... You know, I just call people up and I say, I want to just have a brief phone conversation and talk to you and I'll ask just an initial question. We'll start talking for 15 to 20 minutes without a break. I would say most people do that. And that, you know, then I start engaging and, follow, and, and asking more questions. When I do that, I'm actually live transcribing everything they say. That's part of my process. Um, because when I go back and ultimately interview people, I heavily prepare the interviews based on um i heavily prepare the interviews based on things that they said in these initial conversations so um sometimes people have reservations particularly if they're public personalities or they were burned by the media and i have to you know do kind of not campaign but i have to I have to keep at it and build a rapport and a relationship with them but um for the most part when people are called and asked by a documentary filmmaker if they wouldn't mind having a phone conversation it starts pouring out wow it does also feel the <laughs> subject it does really feel the subjects though as well in terms of what you've gone for which i would say all has a sort of zone of queerness yeah right i mean it it it's it's not like you know, you're not like looking to cover Madonna and Oprah here or right. it's something it's something that feels it it feels very much of, of finding something and looking to bring it to people. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, in, th in terms of thinking about Arthur Russell and thinking about the gap of AIDS in that canyon, even just beginning from that start 
And then where that's, when I think through that, then through the arc to spaceship Earth, it is, it does really feel so much of this needs more attention on it so that we can figure out where we are now. Exactly. And it feels that the people involved in these have an awareness of that. Right. That if, if it's able to get out there more, maybe we can actually have that this, that the time we're in right now could be a little better. Yeah. So in terms of Spaceship Earth, when you were doing your research, what it, so you found, you saw that, and then... Who was the first person you called? Um, the first person I actually connected to is one of my favorite people in the film, Linda Lay, the biospherian who still lives in Oracle, Arizona, 10 minutes away from Biosphere 2, and is a worm farmer. But she right. is, she's one of the most kind of level-headed and um, generous and thoughtful people um, in the film who came to it um, without defensiveness or without much of an agenda except to share her story because she feels that Biosphere 2 is a magnificent thing and she wants to help inspire other people. And when I went to Oracle, Arizona to visit Biosphere 2, she gave me a tour and it was a really magical experience. And I think wow. when you make a film, sometimes you just have a, a bond or you click with somebody. And I really clicked with Linda and um, she was the first person I spoke to, but the biggest thing was getting access to the group called the Synergists who live still at Synergia Ranch in New Mexico and revolve around John Allen, the, the kind of charismatic personality who conceived of Biosphere 2. So that, I'm not going to say it's a hornet's nest, but it was a, it's a number of personalities who were burned by the media in the past. A lot of people had tried to make this film before and struggled to navigate some complex like legal issues associated with access and archives. And um, basically, we did have to, my producer, Stacy and I had to prove ourselves to them to build their trust and to, to kind of um, get a producer on board who they trusted, who had a connection to them. And so it was a lot of relationship building with them, but they kind of were an entity unto themselves. And they held this enormous archive as well. And so you know, as I started to get to know them and to build trust and a relationship with them, and, to, and I discovered their hundreds of hours of footage in a closet at their ranch, um, <laughs> I started, yeah, started to realize... Wait, what was that, Matt? How did that happen? That, I mean, that's what happens when you make these types of films. Honestly, it's like... So you were just at the ranch and you were walking around and you were like, do you guys have any footage? No, like, I, mm, I had I... said, do you have footage? And they said, yes. And like, you kind of are skeptical when people say that. You're like, oh, some low-res photos and like some like VHS tapes. And the one of the women at the ranch walked us into this temperature-controlled room that had hundreds of 16-millimeter film canisters and analog video oh tapes God. and thousands of images. And, you know, I looked at my producer saying, I'll literally... I'll give a limb to make this film. Like, you know, it's just, it's the trifecta. It's like this incredible story nobody's heard of. Wow. All these people, all the subjects are living and then they filmed everything. So it, um, <laughs> you know, it's exhilarating, but it's also a big ask. Will you trust me with all of this material that you've saved for your entire life that nobody has used or even necessarily looked at? Will you let me use it all? It's a big ask. Right. So, um, yeah, it was... It, it was a process of building a relationship with them. And I think there was some skepticism from them just because they, you know, they've really been regarded as failures in, in the popular right. imagination. And also other people had tried to do it and hadn't succeeded. So I had to build their confidence in my ability to do those. And how did you build their confidence? Um, I think the way I, I do it is by doing homework and knowing everything, you know, like really 
having a hyper-informed conversation with people about what it is that their story is or what their expertise is. I enjoy that because I get to learn a lot of stuff I don't already know. But I think if you come to someone and you start asking them very specific and informed questions and you have meaningful, detailed conversations with them, instead of like playing dumb and being speculative, you're, you're kind of going in there speaking in their language. And even though as a filmmaker, right. my job will ultimately be to make what they did accessible to a layman and, or, or to a dummy, you know, um, right. when I'm able to operate on their level and to speak in their vocabulary and to understand the nuance of their experience and to seek clarification and more details from them, it, it, it builds trust just to know that someone's smart and that they have gone through enough effort to do their homework. Right. I mean, I guess like there's probably dumb people who don't care if you're smart, but like <laughs> I haven't, I haven't been appealing to them as much. Did you did you find that the syner what are they called synergists? Synergists. Yeah. Did did you find that they were still kind of just following in the footsteps of this John character that they would that he well, was the he, one who was going to decide you know, if this he, film gets made. Well, he's 90 years old, so like it's not so much following in the footsteps of him, but taking care of him. And, you know, it's, it's pretty, not to spoil the end of the film, but it's pretty remarkable that this group of people who came together in their 20s in the 1960s are still together now in, in, the, in the kind of commune that they built. And I don't think they would necessarily be together if John wasn't this sort of gravitational force who bonded them. Mm -hmm. They still do projects together and that sense of purpose binds them. But I think he has always been kind of the glue and he's not exactly the leader, but in some ways he is because he gave all these people a sense of purpose and a mission. Um, but he's, you know, he's at the end of his life. He's 90 years old. So, um, you know, they're, they take care of him. Right. But in terms of your conversations with them around getting permission to do this project was, was it sort of like looking to him to say yes, or was it all of them? Um, it's more group dynamics are like, they're hard to read from the outside, but it was clear that it wasn't just him. He's actually kind of not particular about people's interest in him. I think he's kind of blase about it, actually. Um, it, there are individuals within the group who were decision makers and stakeholders. I can't really speak to how that group makes decisions collectively, but it became clear that there were individuals whose purview were specific things and that having their kind of okay would open up access to the larger group and to the larger archive. Right. Right. I really don't want to give away much of the film, especially the end, which had, or the, the sort of enters the enter of the demon moment. Mm -hmm. It's just so incredible. Like we just, uh, I can't believe, Jeremy and I, we can't like our jaws. I can't know. I am mad. I want to talk about everything. Well, well, I'm sorry. Well, well Matt, I really want people to watch this film. At the premiere of the film, people screamed. They they were like, what? I mean, and, um, it yeah. is but, shocking. And anytime it I would do, shocking. anytime I did any press for the film, I asked them, I was like, could you please not spoil it? And they all did. But, yeah. you, you know, well, the way I like to refer to it. And that's why I really don't want to. It's a contemporary political scoop in the final act of the film. That's my, like, <laughs> yeah. jazzy and way of I saying mean, it. It is just shocking. And when you found at what point in the in what point in the process did you find that part of the history? I think pretty early on I okay. I knew about it 
there's some extraordinary archival material that brings this contemporary political scoop to life um, that right. was recorded by one of my subjects. And the New Yorker had reported on this, and I was aware of its existence, but assumed that the subject would never give me permission to use that material. And he did. And it makes it all the more um, juicy. So it, wow. it's kind of like I became aware that there was some documentation of this kind of villain. And mm -hmm. I was just so delighted that I was able to use it. So... And when you got the and I have, so I'm not going to say who it is, and it, and everyone is going to just, you have to watch this movie, everybody, but... The CPS, the Contemporary did, Political Scoop. Yeah, the CPS. <laughs> how did you, yeah, how did you get permission from this individual? Well, at this point, I had been working with this group very intimately and using all sorts of materials, and they actually had a meeting as a group to decide if they would let me use it, and they decided to let us use it. But what did, but did he, but he didn't, you didn't write him to ask no. if you could use no, 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 no. the footage it's of not him with him. him. Oh, okay. it's a, the spoiler is someone in my, in the film, someone you'll get to know, puts a tape recorder in his underpants and records. Oh, audio. yes. Right. And so <laughs> right, right, right. that, yeah, I didn't actually contact the contemporary political villain. I just had right, access right. to the CPV. These, the CPV. I had right, access right, right. to these secret tapes. And that proved to be right. That was so. And did you get any? So then, did have you been contacted at all by that CPV or no. anyone in the GOVT? No. Wow. Oh my God, CPV. Wow. CPV has gone on to do such worse things. I'm. Just, what does he care? Well, um, and everybody I mean, is like, it's... "Why didn't you interview CPV?" And I'm like, uh, "CPV no. doesn't need my fucking platform." You know what I mean? No, and absolutely like, not. Yeah. No, it's much better to just see entrance of the evil, but. Okay, so that was one question I had about that. And the other was, at a certain point in the movie, you were talking to um, a, a female subject who is very close uh, to the whole project who gets up and walks off camera. Mm -hmm. um, may I ask what the question was that you had asked that she said she wouldn't respond to? Well, I was asking her to recount the day that Biosphere 2 was taken over. And obviously, there's, it's a sensitive subject. And she was getting emotional and in an interview is sometimes when somebody's getting emotional, you need to just, you need to push a little further to ask them to go next level with it, to really reflect on how they felt. And that will often come alive on screen. And I think she was very kind of cognizant and aware of the filmmaking process and didn't want to engage on that level. And so she got up and left and I had to, co I had to convince her to come back. But, you know, I think, some, you know, these, her interview is like five hours. A lot of times people do these long form yeah. interviews and you lose track of all time and space. And you're kind of like in this weird zone with me. Um, look, like I'm looking straight in your eyes. I memorize all my questions and it goes on wow. for five, six hours. And people, they, they open up in unexpected ways. And it's, I guess it sounds manipulative, but I don't think it really is. I think sometimes someone tells you an emotional story and you just say, how did that make you feel? And if they start to relive those feelings, you create a space where they express it. And yeah, there's cameras filming. And after a certain amount of duration, I think I, I'm never on the other side. I don't know, but I think after a certain amount of time, you normalize it. And if you forget, you aren't cognizant that you're being filmed. You're just engaged in a conversation with me, you know, mm -hmm. 
At what point in the process of research did you find out about their theater practices, let's say? Oh, I mean, right away, for anyone who didn't see the film, they were part of the theater of all possibilities, um, which people wanted to call the film that. And I said, no, because my friend was like, that sounds like a puppet show. Um, but um, <laughs> it looked like a puppet show. <laughs> although I I love the t- the name of the theater company in the context of the larger story and their whole philosophy. But um, I knew about that right away. I mean, as soon as I learned stuff about the prehistory of the group, I became just as interested in that as the Biosphere Two experiment. And and I spend considerable mm-hmm. time in the film fleshing out that whole prehistory because it really speaks to how eccentric the whole vision was for Biosphere 2. And, but at the same time, it, as it was eccentric, it also was guided by practical experience that made these people see the threat of catastrophic um, climate change. So, um, right. you know, the theater thing was always super interesting to me because the whole, what's so kind of um, alluring about Biosphere 2 is the theatrical spectacle of it all. Yeah, it's really, I mean, in that part, well, also, because at that time, I mean, it made me think of um, Through the Ridiculous, mm-hmm. Charles Ludlum, mm-hmm. and, but it's, that's not what's happening here, but it is what's happening here. There's so many scenes that happen inside of the film, which is so exciting to watch. Well, I mean, they were I, always, I have, they were always super adjacent to better known avant-garde threads. Like, they were very close to William right. Burroughs and Brian Geisen and, you know, cross paths with all sorts of, and Buckminster Fuller, and, you know, the they're really close relatives to all sorts of better-known avant-garde figures, but they themselves are not well-known because they were at the intersection of science, adventure, and theater, which is not a not an intersectional space that's well well-traveled. And we're very global in a way that they didn't just stay here and make this mark in in this country in the same way, I mm-hmm. feel like, as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, it's, I mean, those other people feel very sort of stationary in a way that these people are so nomadic mm-hmm. and then have all these sort of venture capital things happening outside of the country as they're working with their main their main producer, so to speak. Yeah. It's so yeah. complex in terms of them being this, idealist communal communal group that was also very capitalist weirdly and also Mm -hmm. this theater aspect gave them a kind of cult (laughs) feeling in in a way that i was like oh this is like the rajneeshi documentary Mm -hmm. like that's how Mm -hmm. it started to feel at a moment and then it it kind of didn't go there because in the end these people are actually very reasonable yeah and the biosphere project was I mean, it's so funny that people kept calling it a failure because like things went wrong, but it was an exper it was an experiment. So obviously, like it couldn't be perfect, and it, it just was strange to me that the the media turned on them because like things didn't weren't perfect. It that was odd. Yeah, I it's I know, and even just like reading sometimes like bloggers or people on Twitter about the film. It's like people are snarky and cynical. The idea of a kind of like idealistic group is repulsive to a lot of people too, you know? Mm -hmm. And also I think like um, the idea of an experiment can be much bigger than just a scientific experiment. These people engaged in a kind of life experiment. Everything they did was a living experiment 
um, in the broadest sense, whether it was experimental theater or a human experiment or actual real scientific experimentation. And that worldview and that viewpoint, I think, was very, um, I think people were really suspicious of that kind of thing. Um, yeah. It doesn't like. Why do you think that is? Because, like, I mean, I'm curious for your own opinion. People engaged in a life experiment. Um, who based their life mission on a avant-garde French novella, like they don't really belong <laughs> on Good Morning America. You know, like right. Good Morning America and the theater of all possibilities are not the best bedfellows. Right. And I mean... Well, for, and I feel for, that goes back to what you said. Go ahead, Reid. No, no, no. I was just going to say really quickly that watching this, I was also very skeptical of them, but mostly because they were being bankrolled by kind of suspect sources where you're like... Mm-hmm. This is the money that's bankrolling this idealism. It's very ironic in a way. Yeah, and it came back to bite them. And I think yeah. that's the the kind of cautionary tale or parable of it all is is that you know um, vanguard projects that happen outside of the mainstream are often the you know the outcome of of private venture, but it's ultimately capitalism and politics that shortchanges those visions. I mean. That is the the kind of what you could say neoliberal dilemma. It's like, you know, you can't change the world and make money at the same time as much as people want to believe that's possible. Right. Well, and and there's like both the thing of it goes back to what you we were talking about earlier of that people want what's known. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean we we see this at all levels. We've certainly talked about it on this podcast before when it comes to the arts, and then and also that if you want money, you have to work next to money. Yeah, like, it's true. If you want art, you work next to art. If you want experimentation, you work next to experimentation. But if you want money, you work next to right. money. Well, and that yeah. is its own thing. I mean, as a right. filmmaker, it's a little different for me. Like, I need a lot of money to make a film like that. And right. there, there is a delicate balance between the kind of commercial goals of a film and my kind of creative autonomy. And... I, I fortunately haven't had to make creative compromises because of the business interests related to films, but I think the ethos of bigger is better really bit these people. They did kind of like scalable projects that were modest, that didn't capture the media's attention. And in a lot of ways, those projects were very successful on their own terms, but that once they blew it up to like literally create a new world on this monumental kind of, Stage of the world media, it, it exploded. And I think like, and I think that's true of filmmaking too. It's like, if I take $20 million to make a movie, like I'm not going to have artistic autonomy. So I right. think, you yeah, know, how have you, how have you met? I mean, is it partly from mentorships with people like Kelly, where you've been able to, to know, to get advice prior on how that balance is going to work out for you? No, not really. I think it's kind of just moving from experience to experience and identifying like partnerships that work for me, things that don't work for me, trying not to get too many people involved unless they have to be involved and surrounding myself with collaborators who have different skills than me, who can manage those dynamics when I can't and who protect the creative process, but also just like, you know, if scaling up, scaling up incrementally instead of going from, you know, I like to go from wild combination directly to this film. I think I would have been out of my depth a little bit just in right. terms of managing the scope of material, the amount of collaborators, the budget, like all that stuff. But 
I've kind of slowly built to a place where I'm making films the way I am now, and I'd love to continue doing that. And it's only going to be viable if I don't continue to scale up. So I'm, I'm very, I mean, Kelly is a filmmaker who has worked at a modest scale for a really long time and it shouldn't be romanticized. It's really difficult to work at a modest scale and people are often undercompensated, but it is viable to do something that works and to continue doing that instead of trying to do some bigger is better type um, project. Um, this is a, a a little bit of a departure from, from from sort of the more structural aspects of making the movie, but was there any discussion among you or w- among the synergists about the sort of glaring absence of diversity in their idealist construct of a universe? They had next to nothing to say about it, which is surprising to me. I asked everybody, but, um, and within the film, I used archival material to kind of um, make that critique or to, to really draw so attention to it. Hilarious. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Really, I know the news part where, where they were representing the, the whole, world. There's the whole the, colonial dimension to the whole project. I mean, they built an enormous ship right. and started businesses in like, you know, the Australian outback and Kathmandu and right. they right. wanted to pursue space colonization. <laughs> and, you know, so there's a colonial <laughs> enterprise to building a new world, especially yeah. when it's with eight, eight white inhabitants. But, from their point of view, they weren't creating a model society. They were creating a laboratory of Earth. But when you create a, an enormous terrarium in the in the desert with eight inhabitants, you you, you are creating a model society right. for better or for worse. And and well, uh, with eight you know. white starving scientists, but also like there was whose voice was it in the documentary who was like they've put together the most diverse group of people you know or i can't recall the oh line, yeah that was so... from some some news crew yeah and i i <laughs> some people are like how could they say that and it's like it's a joke um but i think they were like diverse <laughs> because there's like a german person and a british person but right. um but, um, or a Dutch person. It was like they went to different schools and grew up in different places. <laughs> this, but they're but they're also all cis, white, and straight, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think yeah. that's the 90s, too. It's just the media's, like, complete tone deafness and, like, uh, lack of consciousness of its own whiteness and its own presumed whiteness of its viewers as well. Right. I mean, there's, there, felt, there might have been some homo sexuality in the bio in the biosphere <laughs> i think no. i would have personally picked up on it pretty quickly and i did yeah. not all yeah. right i uh, same same i can always i can read it miles away through a through a camera oh, I, screen i have another random question because you've been in biosphere too correct correct does it still have purple wall-to-wall carpet yeah it still wow. has the they preserve they broke up all the biomes and put boardwalks through it and all sorts of stuff, <laughs> but it still has like the teal orange purple color scheme. I mean, just the nineties color palette was delightful. I mean, what about, and does it still have the ocean with the coral? The coral reef is dead, but the ocean is oh. still there. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Are there, is it Are there still infest, in infested with cockroaches? <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's an open air situation um there's i don't they were like redoing the ocean i believe but it was more like algaes and seagrasses and stuff when i was there it's um 
you know, it's not the Eden it was designed to be. Right, it's collapsed. It's collapsed at this point. Did you, I was curious to, I mean, when we, when I saw the movie come up and I was like, Spaceship Earth, that's this ride at Epcot. Yeah. And I actually, uh, and I, I made like, a oh pilgrimage God. to Epcot last July 4th <laughs> when I forced my boyfriend saying it was a vacation. He's like, this is called a work trip. It's not a vacation. And we used um, miles to stay at a family resort on July 4th in Orlando. Um, oh my God. Yeah, they had a parrot. And then you got to go through Spaceship Earth as narrated by Walter Cronkite. I yeah, think. with all these animatronic vignettes about the future. Yes. Was, and I wanted to go because they're um, remodel or they were remodeling Epcot. And I wanted to see it in all of its kind of analog glory. glory. And right. um and it was amazing, but yeah, it's a play on the Buckminster Fuller book, you know, like countercultural futurism of the 60s, and then this like cartoonish geodesic dome at, at Walt Disney. Well, I deeply remember it. I mean, I, I definitely went on that ride more than once. Uh, my family wanted to go, my mother wanted to go to Disney World every year. So wow. we, we frequently did, even when I was a goth uh, <laughs> suicidal teen. But, um, <laughs> So I was like, oh my God, this is going to be about that. And then I saw that it was your name and I was like, wow, it is not about that ride at Epcot. So <laughs> Disney doesn't own the rights to the name Spaceship Earth. Um, no, they don't. I mean, because it's the, the Buckminster Buck Fuller. Fuller. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, a, another random question, which is that I can't remember, but who involved instigated those absurd jumpsuits because it was clear that none of the biospherians they thought it was a joke in a way well how did did they come to be i heard in early research that it was marilyn monroe's costumer who designed them but i found no evidence to substantiate that but there is that archival (laughs) clip of the like costume oh talk about gay this cut i didn't it's not really evident in the footage i used but there's this mini documentary of this kind of queenie older guy like showing prototypes of the biosphere 2 uniforms with the the kind of models running down the street and he's oh, right, very right, right. he's very handsy with the male model um I see. oh i feel like that was in there yeah it was it was in the you movie. don't see it it gets handsier than what you saw <laughs> oh wow so, yeah. how did that get cut out I mean there's only so much you can include you know I, it's, that right. would have been more about me than the story <laughs> right 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 that's very that's very that's very good um what speaking of you what are you do you have or can you say what you're working on currently I can't but I desperately hope it comes to fruition and that I can say something in a few weeks <laughs> I don't know I I desperately hope it comes to fruition too, because I adore getting to see your work and, um, and it's, uh, I, so I'll, I'll, you know, have all my crystals laid out for you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Matthew, how are you doing self care in um, this time of quarantine? I'm doing pretty well. I come to my basement in the West Village. I go to East River Park. I'm involved in a lot of activism to save East River Park right now. I found a with a past guest of ours, Emily Johnson. Oh yeah, and I got Mia Farrow to retweet about it too. That was one of my big contributions. But um, no, I desperately want to save my park, which they're threatening to close down in September. So. Um, that's my big self-care, East River Park, and they're going to destroy it. So I don't know what my fate is, but I do Zoom yoga. Um, you know, I'm okay. I'm trying to just 
stay in my lane, do my thing, and not read, not hear his voice or read about him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Hideous. Yeah, it's pretty, um... <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. Yeah, it's pretty next it's level. Really Actually, this morning I was like, next level, like, I don't know, with Lebanon and everything. And, uh, oh, yeah. God. Devastating. Devastating. I yeah, have... it's a real... That was what, watching the footage from that, I've never seen anything like it. I was like, well, you can always join my Shoah Holocaust documentary group if you want to. I would love to actually be in a film group with you because I, I want to learn more. I want to see more. I'm going to have <laughs> some time on my hands. I'm going to be in New York. So we can, you should project something onto a wall so we can all sit outside. A 14-hour civil rights documentary I could project on yeah, Well, and Reed and I, Reed and I are definitely, as we said before, maybe this podcast is called Movies and Stuff because we do really. It's only we only care about movies. <laughs> I'm, I'm same, obsessed. Same. Changed, changed my, changed my life. Love, love doing, love um, seeing. I know. If someone was me. like, you can only see either dance or movies for the rest of your life. I mean, it's a no-brainer. We would be like, <laughs> yeah. You're like, I don't want to get COVID. I'm going to watch movies for the rest of my life. Also, like movies well, are really... better. <laughs> <laughs> I like dance. Dance is fine. <laughs> movies are amazing. It, it, it's a different experience. There's definitely times that I have had a more extreme level of catharsis in the liveness of dance yeah. and what's happening with someone's body in that. But in terms of accessibility and iconography, probably films. I went to I Pina mean, Bausch. Real... I went to Pina Bausch on mushrooms once. That was transcendent. <laughs> what? what Which do you remember one? what dance it was? No, I don't remember. It was good. She was alive. Um, I don't remember. Oh, wow. It was a while ago. Wow. Probably the one with the hippo and the, when the hippo comes out of the water. Wait, There's look. It's like a lot of water came down. Oh, cute. I see your dog. But it's not mine. It's, it's, it's a bulldog. It's, it's Lauren Strongin and Joe Walsh's. Correct. Reed is currently in San Francisco at theirs. Um, wait, Matt, uh, I had a question. Mm. Oh, I know what it was. Um, Oh, he did that movie I loved so much. Well, I loved Birth, and then I loved Under the Skin. Um, Glazer. Oh, um, John Glazer, yeah. Jonathan Glazer. His, you know, his next film is Holocaust. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. I mean, oh, good. it's interesting because um, in the documentary world, in the acad- I'm in the Academy. They, the mm. Academy is very Holocaust preoccupied. They always, like, give some love to a Holocaust theme film, and everybody's always like, ugh. The Holocaust, you know, the the Holocaust ticket, and um, it's you know it's just a cliche of documentaries, but um, yeah, lately I'm really going there. You know, I'm I'm interested. This film about Lenny Riefenstahl is so good. She's such a she's such a tricky she's such a tricky. I'm not going to say biatch, but she is. Kind no. of. It's really it's a real. Uh... I'm curious about what is that movie called? I want to watch it. That's, that sounds it's like, like, like the wonderful, watch. horrible, blah, blah, blah. Hold on. Let me look it up. The Lenny, wonderful, horrible Lenny Riffenshaw. Lenny. Well, you know, she became an underwater, um, underwater photographer. And yeah. I desperately want to acquire like a Lenny Riffenshaw, um, underwater photo print so that when people come over, where'd you get the starfish? Lenny Riefenstahl shot it. Um, the wonderful, horrible life of Lenny Riefenstahl, a 1993 German documentary film. Oh, wonderful. And where is it? Where are you watching that? YouTube. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. YouTube does have, 
you know, forever. My favorite movie is probably Opening Night, and mm. it took you know it that is was on YouTube first. Which oh, really? I think was one of the places. Yeah, that's a place. I mean, now it's on. You can see it on Criterion. Um, I wish Gloria was streaming on Criterion, but um, <laughs> I have another question for you, Matt. Which is, so they say you're either a Petra von Kant or a Veronica Voss. Which are you? Petra von Kant. Yeah, that is. That that seems that tracks. Okay, I, I'm as well a Petra von Kant, and I think Reed is also. No, Reed actually might be a Veronica Voss. I literally I mean, don't never... even understand the question. These are films <laughs> by Fassbender, which I think you did see The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, Reed, because I introduced it at IFC. I know, but I didn't go. But I remember you doing. Oh. That. <laughs> He's right. You would. I think you'd like it. I think you'd like. Maybe, well, you definitely like parts of it. Um, well, what's really important is for all of our listeners to please watch uh, Matt's movies, Teenage World Combination, Recorder, Spaceship Earth. Watch the movies. I would appreciate and, it. And, and you will definitely, I, uh, ladies and gentlemen, when you watch uh, Spaceship Earth, make sure to um, comment on it and uh, share it. And if you're, share it, share it, and like, like subscribe. We're not asking you to watch some like boring art documentary. We're watch- asking you to watch an incredible film honey, that you're going to love that will shock you. You will laugh. You might cry. Honey, who who on earth would we have been like, please come on and talk to us for <laughs> over an hour. Can you imagine if we were like, oh my God, Reed, it's so boring. No, it's not, not going to happen. This is and the best, like a real- best plug ever. Also, Matt, I wish you could have, it was literally, I texted you immediately at that. I, th- I mean, I texted you this already, but I mean, to, to like get my partner and Parker and I to all have our jaws drop at the same time. Hard. Amazing. Okay, good. Hard. I We're mean, tough. And, We're ultimately And Jack and Jeremy, crew. you guys have been doing an excellent job curating my viewing experience this summer because I also oh, really enjoyed um, The Last Dance. Really liked it. Oh, I want oh, to good. do that. Yeah. Yeah, you should watch really that. Good. And um, so good. We well, I got really into sports documentary. I mean, my partner's a filmmaker, and I he started really getting into first sixteen days of glory, and then from there into last dance, and then we just started getting into sports docs uh-huh. because the rigor. It just feels in this time of a lack of rigor and people just like flailing around. Letting themselves go. Yeah. Letting themselves go. If you want to see some rigor, I'll recommend one dance thing that might still be streaming online, which is Paris Opera Ballet's Cinderella, the Nureyev production, which is about Hollywood. Mm. So, um, Mm. it has a lot of really hard, good dancing by excellent dancers and some like very, some very good, some very interesting, um, design choices. (laughs) <laughs> well, and as anyone knows, I love any discussion around Hollywood. It's Hollywood. Um, <laughs> uh, Matt, thank you so much for coming on. I, I look forward to being in touch with you more. And when we're all back or can all hang out more, uh, let's go you have to, to the come park. up and talk at Bard. Yeah, come up to Bard and, and you, you know, you'll stay with me and or, and or Kelly or both of us. You'll have to talk to our classes. Yeah. Was this your best interview about Spaceship Earth? <laughs> by far. It was without a doubt and by far the best interview. <gasps> oh my oh, God. Thank you. Yay. We did so much prep for I, it. So much my prep. my recorder worked. No, I, I can tell my recorder. Oh my I'm, God. I'm, I'm like you. With, like, we memorized all of our questions. <laughs> I memorized, memorized all of my questions and I also wanted to make sure that I was looking directly into your eyes. On yes. I felt that instantly. And I did it. 
That God, was so, God. I have to say, what a thrill. I, movies. Movies. God. Movies. That Amazing. really is the new frontier for us. We have to just t- do movies. Movies, movies, movies. And it begins with Matt, Eminem. Movies. Um, um, awesome. Thanks for having me. Um, I hope to you, see Matt. you both in real life. I would you love will. that. Okay, you well, will. we loves you. And Leia Shimonother, we loves you. Bye.